Well, hi, folks. Great to see you. Thank you. All right. No, I don't think so. I'll read it first. Well, good to see you, everybody. There are a couple. No, there aren't. Hey, if there's a seat near you, would you raise your hand? Here's a couple seats right here, folks, if you'd like them. Those are good. These are the expensive seats up here. Okay. You can't afford them. Okay. All righty. Well, make yourself comfortable. Great to see you. Glad you came in and are not outside on this beautiful day. We are in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 will give you a chance to find it. It's really good to study the Psalms. Could be worse. We could be studying Obadiah. Try finding Obadiah. It's in there somewhere. But Psalms are easy. You basically let the Bible open to its natural place and you're probably going to be in the Psalms. Just to refresh your memory, there's 150 of them. It's divided into five sections, not by topics, but by the time in which each section was added to the book of Psalms. These are poems, eventually put to music. It became the hymn book of ancient Israel, hence a lot of musical notation in it. But it's Hebrew poetry, not as we know it. Rhyming is not the distinguishing factor. Repetition of thoughts is. And so we started with Psalm 1. We mentioned it to be a Psalm of David, as are most. So some people think all of the Psalms are authored by David. That's not true. Most of them are. And, and the ones that are authored by David usually say so. A psalm, for instance, if you glance down to Psalm 3, you'll see the superscript above the actual text. It'll say something like Psalm of David, doesn't it? That is not an editorial comment by the translators of your Bible. That are in the original text. But now if you back up to Psalm 2, and that's the psalm we're going to look at today, who wrote that? It doesn't say, does it? No. Right up on top there in the front of Psalm 2, it doesn't say some of this one, some of that. So, you have any idea who wrote it? What do you think? Who do you think wrote it? Yeah, I think David too, but is there any way we can know that for sure since it doesn't actually say Psalm of David? Do you have any thoughts about how we could know? Yeah, Obadiah. Thank you, Dwayne, for being silent from now on. <laughs> yeah, brother. Well, that, that, that's interesting. So, um, what you're seeing is some internal characteristics in the vocabulary that you think could be attributed to David, and you're not... Uh, far off, you're not amiss in thinking that. That's pretty good. Any other way to know? Yes, sir. Was that uh, in uh, verse 7? Was that the uh, phrase that the Lord Jesus Christ questioned the uh, Pharisees with? That's really good. A great question. And we will try to address it um, when we get to verse 7. So that's a way of saying. We're not even in verse one yet. We're gonna get 
we're going to get there to see what is verse 7 all about. But, okay, I'll tell you. Um, we know that David wrote this because the New Testament writers tell us he did. In fact, Psalm 2 is the most often quoted psalm of all 150 in the New Testament. The New Testament writers uh, uh, quote parts of Psalm 2 more than any other psalm. And I'll show you uh, before we take leave of one another in an hour or two um, that uh, David is the author according to New Testament writers. So this is an example of how you want to use the Bible to comment on itself. So we consult the New Testament to see to whom this psalm is attributed and it makes it clear it's attributed to David. So we're reading another psalm of David. Just talking to someone, we returned from Israel not too long ago and we went to a place there called En Gedi. Do you remember? And it's in the Dead Sea area and there was a waterfall. Did you climb up to the waterfall? Uh, it was too hot. It was too hot. <laughs> I didn't want to sweat. I've traveled to Israel, a thousand miles away, trip of a lifetime. I didn't want to sweat. <laughs> okay, you went to Qumran, good. So anyway, like it's not hot in Houston. But anyway... Um, it's a waterfall, and it is thought that David wrote many of these psalms there. He was hiding from Saul uh, there. Lots of caves he could hide out. And remember one time David said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee. It is thought that maybe he got inspiration to use that vocabulary right there at this place called En Gedi, which means spring of the kid or the mountain goat. Okay, so it's possible, it's possible he wrote this very psalm there at En Gedi near the waterfall, which you missed out an opportunity to sing. But it's okay, just as long as your makeup didn't smear, I'm sure that's the point of life. Okay, so you ready? Here we go, verse 1. Why? David writes, are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. He opens, as has already been pointed out, with a striking question. It's rhetorical. It's really a statement in the form of a question. David says, I'm confused and overwhelmed. The nations are up to something. The nations have a plan, but it's not going to work. It's destined for failure. We don't know what the plan is yet. We have to wait. Right now he's observing the international situation as many of us have had occasion to do in recent days. His conclusion is somehow the leaders of the world have an inclination uh, that is a very foolish and vain inclination. And they have a purpose and a plan, but it's going to lead to dismal failure. Why are they doing this? Well, what is it that they're doing? Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Look, against the Lord and against his anointed. David is perplexed. He is saying, I don't get it. The Lord and his anointed, those are the givers of life, the creator. The Lord is the creator. And he created these very leaders of the nations in his own image. 
So to the extent that they are rebelling against their creator, they are essentially rebelling against themselves because they bear the image of God. What they mean is resistance towards him is actually going to come back on them. David said this is a vain thing. It doesn't make any sense. First of all, it cannot work. The creature cannot replace the creator. But secondly, why would you want to? I think this is part of what David was perplexed about. He's saying the creator of the world, the Lord and his anointed, they're givers, they're not takers. They're beneficent. They're not dictatorial. They don't subjugate. They set free. Why, therefore, are the world's leaders rebelling against them? Notice it says Lord and his anointed. Now you have an interesting veiled um, presentation of the two persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. The Trinity is not a New Testament concept. Do you know that? If God is a Trinity, He always are a Trinity right. from beginning to end. And right. so here we're kind of introduced to the Trinity. Lord and His anointed. Why they, Folks, it's not like the rulers of the world behind the scenes. And in a way that's not reported in the normal newspapers. It's not like they have these clandestine meetings nobody knows about where the subject is Jesus and their stated inclination is to rebel against him. You know, my guess is that when the leaders of the world get together, the name of Jesus is not even on the table. So what does this mean? It means in essence they want to be free of any higher authority. That's what it means. Why? Because the fundamental human inclination is to be independent of God. That is the sin that's at the foundation of all sin. It's man in a quest to meet his own needs without making recourse to a creator. It's autonomy from God. So it isn't so much that the nations of the world or even orchestrated or, or, or uh, organized enough to rebel specifically against the name Jesus as much as they're rebelling against the true highest authority and that is the Lord and his anointed. They don't want to be controlled or subjugated. They want to be mastered by no one outside of them. And you know this to be true as you consider the world's leaders. Even in modern times. Right. I mean, you got the leader of Iran. This guy's an egomaniac. You have the leader of North Korea. His country is impoverished and he's building up this massive military. You had Idi Amin in Africa who killed many of his people. You had Stalin who killed 12 million of his people. You had Hitler, you had a guy named Ceausescu in Romania, a madman. And something happens when these men are elevated to this position of power. They think there is no law apart from themselves. So they take and use women as they please. They force your children to be propagandized in the schools of their making. And it goes on. These are modern day rulers, but this has been the case throughout human history. And so this verse explains to me the international scene. There's an irrational inclination on the part of those who come into power. I didn't say all, many. 
maybe most. To abuse that power and to deceive themselves into thinking they have mastery of their own destinies and the destiny of their people. And so it's as if they are together standing and taking their counsel against the what in the world? Oh, okay. Thank you, Mike. Oh, it's it's in there? Yeah. Please let Chuck out. Would you? you tell him if he's going to be good. Wow. It was like this sound kind of a thing over there. You know what I mean? Okay. No, that's fine. It doesn't bother me. Okay. So, hey, see, against the Lord and His anointed... You've heard of the word Messiah? Messiah comes from a Hebrew word, Moshiach. Moshiach means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Want to know how to say Messiah in Greek? Christos. Want to know how to say Christos in American? Christ. So Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is a description of who he is. He is Jesus, the Messiah. He is Jesus, the Anointed One. Is this a reference to Jesus, the Anointed One? Yes and no. Isn't that a good answer? See, here's the deal. When you're reading many things in Old Testament Scripture, you're reading about something that has a very valid historical factual reality. Ah, But you're reading about something, the significance of which points even beyond. So this is a reference to King David, for sure. Ah, But under inspiration, when King David is writing this, he, he doesn't fully understand even what God is pouring into his life, what God is breathing into him. But he's pointing to the ultimate King of Kings, the ultimate anointed one, King Jesus. Am I interpreting it this way? No. I'm using the New Testament on a commentary of it. For instance, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, just for a second? Hebrews chapter 1. That's a, a book of the Bible, and we don't know who the author is for sure. There's um, ideas and speculation, but we can't. We don't know for sure. Whoever wrote Hebrews, however, wrote this. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the prophets, that's guys like Obadiah, in many portions, that's the Old Testament, and in many ways, after God revealed himself in the Old Covenant. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Well, is, it, is he referring to David? No, 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 no. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See, God didn't make the world through David, did he? He made the world through Jesus, his son. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I hope you are persuaded now that could be a reference to only one. 
Only Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, that's Jesus, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you know what that is a reference to? Quotation from? Psalm 2. That's it. Quotation from Psalm 2. It is applied in Hebrews 1 to the Lord Jesus. So that's why I say, I'm not reading my interpretation into Psalm 2. I'm reading the New Testament into Psalm 2. You see? The New Testament writers, I'll show you elsewhere as well, take Psalm 2 and apply it to the ultimate anointed one. And he is not David. He is the Lord Jesus. Amen. So, by the way, you can understand the uh, harmony of the Bible if you, if you think of it this way. Think of the Old Testament as a young child growing and think of the New Testament as the child growing now to maturity with regard to God's revelation. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, God uses many illustrations, concrete, physical things in the world. That's what we do in teaching children. He doesn't use a lot of concepts and abstractions. He uses a lot of concrete things. For instance, you've read about the temple in the Old Testament. God told us in the book of Exodus, he told Moses, this is how I want you to build it. Temple, a building. But when we read the New Testament, where's the temple? Look around. <laughs> now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So can you see the temple was the physical meeting place of God with the people in the Old Testament? And now you have established a point of contact with God in your very life if you've accepted the Lord Jesus. His Spirit doesn't show up at a building. His Spirit indwells you. So you can see the movement from some concrete physical reality in the old to the ultimate spiritual reality in the new. On and on. This is how to read the Old Testament and the New Testament, otherwise you make a mistake. The Old Testament promises Israel physical blessing, a land of milk and honey. But the New Testament says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God is using a very concrete indication of his blessing. I'll give you milk and honey kind of a thing. And then when he moves to the New Testament, he's showing us, remember, we're moving from infancy to maturity. Uh, what I really mean to say is, I have for you blessing riches that are of eternal consequences. Not just a physical land characterized by milk and honey, but a promised land beyond anything you can imagine. So can you see the movement? So if if you're using some of the things in the Old Testament to justify certain promises of God today, you're missing the point. He's moving us from the Old Testament to the New. So here we're moving from his anointed King David to really his anointed King Jesus. You see? So anyway, that's kind of what's going on over here. And what are they saying? Verse 3, Let us tear their fetters, chains, apart 
and cast away their cords from us. You see, that's the human inclination. It's well illustrated with the world's leaders, but it characterizes all of us. It's just more well illustrated with world leaders because they have power. Most of us don't, and power seems to corrupt. I don't know what it is, but when someone some accedes to one of these high positions, I don't know, I guess they, they are fooled into thinking they're all that. I guess they're fooled into thinking they be God. I guess they're fooled into thinking they are the law. It happens all over. It's just quite an interesting, it's quite an interesting thing. And so essentially what people are saying is, I don't want to be bound by this highest authority, the Lord and His anointed. In other words, don't tell me what to do. Don't fence me in. Hey, if it feels good, I'm doing it. You don't have any right to tell me it's wrong. You know this is the attitude of the day. When we state one of God's moral precepts, well, that's your opinion. No. No. It's the word of the Most High God with reference to the unborn, with reference to the definition of marriage. It's not a matter of opinion. Let's vote. It's the Word of God. But don't you see? No, no, let's tear those fetters, those, those moral chains and bonds apart, and in fact, let me deter... Look, we have people running for high political office. Right. You know, as far as humans go, I think, I think the candidates are a lot smarter than I am. I do. I think they're quite outstanding in many earthly ways, educationally, life experience, and I don't know, just the ability to campaign. You ever think of that, how exhausting it must be? So they have many things going for them, but they seem to be largely darkened in their understanding. Right. So when they de try to de determine when life begins and w what relationships are uh, sanctified by God and what are prohibited. They share opinions and they're much better articulated than any uh, I could share. But they seem to be absolutely uninformed of what the highest authority says about these fundamental matters. Exactly. All of them. So you see, this is an illustration. I'll answer these questions according to my understanding. I don't want to be fettered, chained, bound. But you know what's ironic? <sighs> to be mastered by the anointed one is really to be free. It's ironic. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from what? Look, if you choose not to be regulated by the Lordship of Christ, you will be regulated by your unregulated passions. You'll be like Paul who once cried out in sheer and utter despair. You know what he said? There's a bunch of stuff I want to do. I know it's the right stuff to do, but I don't do it. And there's a bunch of stuff I don't want to do because I know it's wrong, but I do those things. 
Who in the world is going to set me free from this? It's kind of like I'm dragging around a body of death. And then he says, but thanks be to God through our Lord Christ Jesus. He found freedom from unregulated passion when he submitted himself to the regulation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a million years ago when I was in the military, I think it was World War I or something like that, <laughs> what the deal was. And uh, I was, uh, I used to, I wasn't a Christian and uh, I used to, there are bars all over, out around military installations, you know what I mean? Because military guys are good customers at the bars. And so I was one and uh, so this was like a regular pattern, but then I became a Christian and I, I got radically saved. And by the way, that's the only way to get saved. You don't get casually saved. You don't get radically saved or you ain't. So anyway, uh, one of my, uh, uh, you know, uh, party friends knocks on the door and he says, come on, let's go. We're getting ready to go to do our thing. So I remember, I had not joined a church yet. I had not yet been to church, I don't know any of the Christian vocabulary. I don't know any of this stuff. Nothing. Zippo. So I remember saying to him, I don't want to go. He said, how come? I said, I don't know. I just don't feel like I want to do that anymore. He said, what do you mean? I said, look, I, I became a Christian. And uh, I just don't think that's the stuff that this Jesus wants me to be doing. So I don't want to do it. He said to me, now that's unbelievable. No preacher, no nothing. You know why? See, that's the Holy Spirit coming into your life, and He kind of He He convicts you of sin, basically. So I remember uh, He 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 said to me, "You know what? All this Christian stuff, you you're just a slave to it." That's what He said. And I remember saying, like it was yesterday, but it was a million years ago. I I remember saying to Him, "No, no, 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 no. You don't get it." For the first time in my life, I'm not a slave to sin. You, you, I said, you see what I'm doing? I'm saying no to it. You're a slave to it. Yes. You cannot say no. And I said, don't get me wrong. I'm a human. I may say yes again, sadly. But I have the option now to say no. So don't you see, if you're not mastered by Christ, you're going to be mastered by your own unregulated passions. That's the way it is. So, 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 so that's what's so perplexing uh, to David. Not just the, the audacity of the creature to think he could resist the Creator, but why? What has the Creator? What has the Anointed done to turn us off? He came. He was enflashed. He suffered and died, and 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 he was crucified and. So David is perplexed. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast their cords away from us. Okay, so how does God feel about all this? Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's right. Hey, there's different ways to laugh, right? Sometimes you laugh because you're amused by something. I don't think God's laughing in amusement. I think he's laughing in derision. Why? See, he's sitting in the heavens. The one who is laughing in derision is enthroned on high. And yet the ones who have established earthly thrones think they can challenge the one who's enthroned on, in heaven. That's right. 
So he's laughing in derision at... In fact, the Lord scoffs at them. How do you think you can supplant a sovereign God? Verse 4 helps me to live above the news. In fact, I, I don't even... I don't read much of the news or watch much of it anymore. That's right. It's not that it's a bad thing to do that. I just don't handle it well. That's right. I get discouraged. I get mad. I get frustrated. I, I get to the kitchen and eat <laughs> a bunch. Let me go on and eat to to you know. Yeah. I mean, I can't do the drinking thing anymore, right? <laughs> But apparently, the gluttony thing is okay. So, you know what I mean? If you're Baptist especially. So anyway, just eat and then get bigger shirts. Hide the love handles. And all. Look, but verse 4 is good news. Verse 4 says, <clears throat> Rebellion, subtle or deliberate, against God's sovereignty in no wise affects the fact that God is sovereign. No one can challenge him. The Lordship of Christ is an established truth no matter what man does with it. Accept it or rebel against it doesn't change a thing. God doesn't perspire, get lathered up, jump off the throne and say, Holy moly, i got to do something about it. He sits on the throne. He laughs. He shakes his head. It's the goofy creature thinking he could live independent of the Creator. So then, verse 5, he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Look, he's a gentleman. He doesn't impose himself on anyone. He invites us to come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy. He invites. Yeah, but don't just extract that gentle lamb-like character of God from the totality of His being. You know who else He is? A consuming fire. Right. So don't make some flower child, you know, some, some hippie, hippie, hippie God out of God. That's right. Oh, yeah. He's uh, filled with grace and mercy. And He's also filled with justifiable holy wrath. Well, the issue is the wrath of God is either outpoured on His Son for you or else it is poured out on you for your own sin. That's the way. So I'm, verse 4 and 5 tells me, hang in there. Dad's on the throne. Dad's in control. Don't get lathered up. And so you end up voting for the candidate of your choice. Do it as a good citizen. Don't get so discouraged that you don't vote. That's silly. Vote as intelligently as you possibly could. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter. Uh, It matters from an earthly point of view. But not in the grand scheme of things. And I'll tell you why. Your father could use anyone to accomplish his ultimate purposes. One way or the other. So I'm praying for the candidate whom the father will most use to accomplish his ultimate good purposes. Now you choose the candidate on that. I mean, that's free country, this kind of deal. All right. So anyway, verse 6. But as for me, 
the father still says, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So here's what he's saying. The kings of the earth are seeking to usurp the authority of and replace my anointed king. But the father says, nope, I've installed him on my holy mountain, on Zion. What's another word for Zion? Jerusalem. I don't know why God has put his attention on Jerusalem as opposed to any other city of the world, but he did. And though you may not know it, Satan surely does. And that's why there's been a constant assault on Jerusalem and will continue to be until the Lord returns. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then it says in verse 7, now I think the speaker is changing in verse 7. You've had the father speaking, but now I think you have his son speaking. Check it out, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, so it's the Lord saying to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now God said that to David in something called the Davidic Covenant. But I think the ultimate Son of God is now applying it to Himself. So in 2 Samuel 7, 14, it says, I will be a father to him, that's David, and he will be a son to me. But the ultimate Son of God now is applying it to Himself in verse 7. Now how do I know this? Can you turn with me to Acts 13? Once again, I'm not making this up. Uh, this is not a personal interpretation. I'm just using the Bible to comment on itself. So Acts 13, beginning in verse 32. And I apologize for not um, answering your questions or taking your statements, but I got I to gotta hurry because we're supposed to finish each class at the same place. Otherwise, um, we lose our salvation or something really, really bad. So anyway, uh, you were there, Acts 13, look, verse 32 and on. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written, look, in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Can you see how the writer of Acts, who is that? Luke. Luke wrote Acts. Remember, he's the author. The writer of Acts is attributing what we just read in Psalm 2 to the Lord Jesus. See it? If you don't now, look at it when you get home. And so that's one of the places in the New Testament where, number, where we're able to see that what David is writing about goes even beyond him and looking to the far greater ultimate fulfillment of King David. It's King Jesus. So then it says in verse 8, back to Psalm 2, ask of me. That's the Father saying to the Son, ask of me. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The Father who sits on the throne has decreed that His Son, King Jesus, will be King of kings 
and even acknowledged by the kings of the earth. In fact, when God gives over to the Son judgment of the world, which he will, the way the ungodly world leaders, nations of the world will be dealt with, look, it's like I'm holding up a piece of pottery and then I release it from my grasp and it falls to the ground, boom, and it breaks into so many pieces that it can't even be put together. That's the picture here of how the Lord Jesus will deal with the rebellious nations of the world. Now, therefore, the psalmist now, in verse 10, offers a warning. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Why are you running from him when you should run to him? You should not rebel, you should worship him. And if you cease to resist him, you'll be able to rejoice, yet with respectful awe. He's not your equal. He is your creator. So do homage to the Son, it says in verse 12. Does your Bible say, kiss the Son? You see, that was the Middle Eastern way of indicating submission and respect to a higher authority. You would kiss that one. In so doing, you're paying homage to the Son. Kiss him that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. The way to avoid the anger of the Lord's anointed is to realize he's so accessible that you can crawl up right to him, you can draw near to him without fear, and you could kiss him and he will not cast you away. You can enter into an intimate, close relationship. You can be in proximity Maybe not with one of the world's rulers, but with the king of kings. And in fact, that closeness indicated by your respectful relating to him as the anointed one, that's what causes his anger uh, to pass from you. Otherwise, you see, his wrath may soon be kindled. And the psalmist ends with this by contrast. But how blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is no blessing in being the master of your own destiny. There is no blessing in trying to be free when the quest we should be participating in in life is not for personal freedom. The quest ought to be for the right master. Everyone's going to be mastered by something or someone. That's the way it is. So the real inclination of humankind ought to be not for personal freedom. It ought to be to submit to the right master. I tell you, if it isn't the Savior, then self is going to call the shots in your life. And your self is laden with corruption and has the potential to destroy you. Your unbridled self, because this is your nature, could lead you into self-destructive behaviors the likes of which you'll never recover. You're not free when that happens. 
you're most to be pitied because not only are you mastered by a cruel taskmaster, you don't even realize it. Blindness. But if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. How blessed are those not who resist Him, but who take refuge in Him. See it? From what? From His inevitable wrath. Do you know? Someone has said, there is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in Christ. There is the irreversible wrath of a holy God. And why should that be a surprise when we get so upset when someone cuts us off on 45? We think that person's life ought to come to an end. How dare you? Well, what about the offense we have given to the holy standards of God? Why do we think if we have a right to retaliate and demand justice and right behavior that He does not? Uh, anytime anyone, politician or Hollywood personality or just ordinary person in the street makes statements like, that's right or that's wrong, they don't know what jeopardy they're putting themselves in because they're admitting to standards of right and wrong. That means God could hold us responsible for His standards of right and wrong. You see, they exist, don't they? Standards of right and wrong. So if we have the opportunity to seek retribution, I'll get him, I'll give him a piece of my mind, I will never forgive that. Why doesn't God have a, the justifiable right to hold us responsible for compliance with His righteous standards? And He will. So there is no refuge apart from Christ, the Lord's holy anointed who will judge the earth. There's only refuge from the wrath, from the righteous judgment of God in Christ. Now we're talking about the nations of the world and this psalm explains to me the world situation. It's a, a world, frankly, bent on rebellion against the King of Kings and I don't care what political party it is. Um, I hope your primary identification, let it be with a political party, be a good citizen. But I hope your primary identification is with the king who sits on the throne and doesn't get all that perspired about the platforms of various political parties. He's in control. He's sovereign. So make your citizenship in heaven as the primary identification. However, though this is about the leaders of the nations of the world, good night, it's about us too. Because even as Christians, we've just got to fight this terrible inclination uh, to live independently of God, to do our own thing. I tell you, there's only blessing <laughs> in giving Him a holy kiss, in being intimate and being close with Him. Now, I'll close with this and we're going to be able to make it. Psalm 2 is historically accurate. But also it has a future, as we've pointed out, significance that goes way beyond its history. It points to the Lord Jesus. And it became such an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in the first century. I hope it's the same for us. So let me show you this. Acts chapter 4, and we will end with this. Acts chapter 4. 
And I apologize, I'm going a little over, but not too bad. It could be really worse. So Acts chapter 4, let's begin in verse 23. I want to show you how the first century Christ followers took encouragement from Psalm 2. Acts 4 verse 23. When they had been released, well, it's Peter and John, they got locked up by the Jewish religious leadership of the day. Why? Because the Jewish leadership of the day is rebelling down to this very day against the Lord's anointed. So they locked up Peter and John. But when they'd been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, when all their companions, all the Christians heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, whom by, who by the Holy Spirit, look, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Folks, uh, verse 25 is a direct quotation from what we just read in Psalm 2. And verse 25 attributes the writing of Psalm 2 to our father David. You see? So that's why we know David wrote Psalm 2. But the peoples of the day took it and applied it though historically a reference to David, ultimately a reference to King Jesus. And so they apply it to him and they say, verse 27, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. See, they apply it to Jesus. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, by the way, Critics of the Bible up until modern days have denied the, even, the existence of Pontius Pilate. But when we were in Israel, we saw something called the Pilate Stone, on which is inscribed the name of Pilate, verification of his historical existence. Anyway, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, look, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And that helps me not to get too worried about, you know, who, who's supporting this candidate and what this candidate is saying. Yeah, I want to be involved, but I don't want to get too lathered up because God can use all things um, according to his purposes in accordance with how he predestined them. Even the very rebellion against his son can be used to accomplish the Father's purposes. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They refer back to Psalm 2. And they remember that David said the nations are rebelling, but it'll be all for naught because their God was the creator God. And they only prayed, just let us be confident to speak forth truth. Don't let us cave in, hide our head in the sand, take a back seat and assume a defensive posture. No. Help us to share good news that Jesus is the King of Kings and he's a refuge 
Let me share it with members of all political parties so that by God's grace and mercy they could find Christ to be a refuge just like I did. So let me not be so cynical and angry about those whose value system is contrary to God's. How can it not be until he enlightens them? So let me be a disseminator of light the only light that can enlighten those who are darkened in their understanding, the Lord Jesus Christ. Could I tell you this? One, one closing thing. I live in a good neighborhood and we have all kinds of different people in my neighborhood. It's very cool. And uh, one of my neighbors has a sign a, a, uh, with regard to a, a, um, a, a political candidate. And uh, I... I, I, I support, I think I'm going, to support, I'm going to support another candidate with my vote. So I was really tempted to get a sign and put that candidate's uh, name on the lawn. Please don't misunderstand. Uh, I'm not telling you it's the wrong thing, but then I thought, what? I'm going to divide with my neighbor over political candidates and lose my opportunity to be a bridge builder and introduce them to the one who is decreed by God to be the king of kings and who doesn't have to be elected to the position. So be careful. Be careful about where you stake out your ground. I got a great relationship with my name. We come from entirely different places. Morally, culturally, racially, everything. And we're very tight. We greet each other warmly all the time. They will... Watch my stuff, I watch their stuff, we are together. I cannot afford to win the battle and lose the war. It's a battle for somebody's soul, not somebody's vote. You understand what I'm getting at? Now, if you're a Christian, I just have to tell you, um, you're an alien passing through here. <laughs> and your citizenship is in heaven. Now, you should be the best American citizen, don't get me wrong. But be careful about staking out your ground on an issue which even if you persuaded someone your way is not going to lead to their salvation anyway. No candidate that we got going is the Savior. I don't know if you knew that. They'd just be men. Maybe good, maybe bad. I don't know. I can't look into people's hearts. But I just do know they ain't the anointed one. Not a one. So, all right, fellow Christians, say again. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I can't read articles till I read it first because I don't know if it's good or bad. And you, oh, because you say so? Okay, this concludes our class. God bless you. See you next week. If it's a good thing, I'll read it next week. You can, if you wait, just wait.